This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Victoria Perman, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks so much, Cheryl, for having me. I, I, it's been a, I can't believe it's taken this long for you and I to sit down and have a conversation. I know. I think geography gets in the way. I'm yeah. an Adelaide girl, yeah. you're a Sydney girl, yeah. but I'm really thrilled to be here. Yeah, no, I'm very happy to have you here today. My goodness me, what a, a CV you have. A multi-published, award-nominated, Amazon Kindle best-selling author... She has worked in and around Adelaide in media for nearly 30 years as an ABC journalist, a speechwriter to a premier, a political advisor, an editor, and a private sector communications consultant. Victoria is also a regular guest at Writers' Festival and was a judge in the fiction category for the 2018 Adelaide Festival Awards for Literature. Wow. I'm tired just listening to you read that out, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> I, I figure that people that work much harder than I do sleep less. <laughs> oh, well, I'm just older probably. <laughs> yeah, do you think it's some of that as well? <laughs> Victoria is best known for her compelling historical fiction with novels including The Three Miss Allens, The Last of the Bon... Is it Bongella Girls? Bonagilla. Bonagilla mm-hmm. Girls. And the most recently, The Land Girls, released in April this year. The Land Girls is a moving story of love, loss and survival against the odds set in Australia during the tumultuous World War II years. Um, your books always create great conversation on our on the Better Reading Facebook page. I guess you see that, don't you? I do, and I've, I've had that mirrored when I've been touring and I'm, I'm in the third week of my tour for the Land Girls. And it's it's been so fascinating. People come along because they've never heard of the Land Girls yeah. or they come along because they have close family connections to Land Girls, the real Australian Women's Land Army. Um, 6,000 Australian women signed up during World War Two, and it's been wonderful to have... My mum was a Land Girl and people are... Um, crying at the memory of their mother who who did this service, and, I, and in a way, I feel I'm on helping to honour that service of those women, yeah. which has been forgotten for for so long and unheralded. Talk- yeah, I was talking to somebody recently, and I can't remember who, but we were talking about women in history, and um, and we were talking about, and this was a crime, a true crime book. I think it was set in the 1940s, but that. They were there. Women have been there, but their stories have never been told. Now, do you know, I've been singing the praises of Australian fiction writers, particularly women writers, for a long time. And we appreciate it very much. Thank you. But I think it's not not me. It's because the readers want to read 
about women. You know, it's normal for people to want to see themselves in fiction and non-fiction, isn't it? Oh, that's totally true. And uh, my book last year, 2018, The Last of the Bonagilla Girls, was written really as a tribute to my mum and her family, but but to everyone who's come to Australia as a migrant. Um, Bonagilla is the name of a, a, an ex-army camp in Albury-Wodonga, and after the war, it took refugees from Europe. And then as, as the 50s progressed, um, they took assisted migrants. So those who came to Australia in return, you know, they got passage and in return they worked for two years. Um, and 320,000 people came through, but there'd been nothing about that history. And and I found when I went and when I toured with that book, it kind of unleashed this pride and awareness of the, of the families of those people and in those people themselves they just thought they'd come to a new country and got got on with things but what I was saying was this was hard yeah. my grandparents came with five children and a trunk mm. and that was it now they were refugees um, in Hungary during the war um, sorry they were they were they were displaced from Hungary after the war, I should say, but they were never really treated as Hungarians because they were from a German background. Then they went to Germany and they were treated suspiciously because they had been born in Hungary. So their lives were, well, it was just upheaval. So they came to Australia in 1954 looking for peace mm. and they found it and they worked hard and if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you mm. today. Mm. But those people didn't think they did anything very brave or they just mm. thought... They were just getting on with their life, but I think they were so brave. Mm. And I heard people people came along and again cried about telling me their stories about we were there. I was born here, there. My my parents came. Um, we moved to Adelaide. My grandfather did what your but grandfather did. But it's the migrant did. story. It's all a migrant over. story. Yeah, it's my parents' story. Yes. You yes. know, yeah, it's and it's very recent, yes. and it's the stories that are happening every day. Exactly, and I wanted that to have resonance with the people who are coming today as well, mm. who are because of the way the world is at the moment, they're viewed with great suspicion. Mm. But, but in a generation's time, we'll view them just the way we view Italians and Greeks and um, Germans and, and Lebanese Poles and Lebanese and all of those people who, yeah. who work hard and their their children. Um, work hard and just want to create a peaceful life yeah. and that's what Australia's given them. So. And also too, I wonder sometimes, you know, with all these, um, and you know, I think, and you've worked in politics, I think politicians um, have been uh, terrible at using um, refugees as a fear tool to keep them in, yes, to yes. keep them in power. I think John Howard was a master at it. But anyway, it is there and there is suspicion and there is, you know, um, all of that around it and it's polarising. But I want people sometimes, I, will people stop and think about do people want to pick up their lives in their own homes? You know, you look at the Sy Syrian refugees oh, recently. I know, I totally you know, agree with you. know, do people want to do that, risk their lives, risk their family, risk their children and come to a country that doesn't even want them? Yeah. Do you think they really want to do that? Yes. If yeah. they had a choice. Exactly. I'm sure they'd like to live in their country without war. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, let's not get on to politics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I, just on that point, I think people are in a way taught to demonise the newest group of arrivals, right? And in the, Why? During wartime, well, it's, it's someone to blame for their economic misfortune. Yeah. And it's not the system that they're, they're taught to yeah. blame. It's the next group. So the Italians were viewed with suspicion. Mm. Before that, the Catholics were. Yeah. Then it was the Vietnamese, Lebanese, the Vietnamese, yeah. and now it's the Sudanese. And it just becomes 
the next group of people we can help you to blame for the fact that our economy is in downturn and you haven't had pay rise for a very long time. Yeah. Don't get me started yeah, on that. But, but, but <laughs> exactly. you know, in 10 years it might be someone else and it's just a sad pattern that we keep mm. repeating. Now, I want to talk about your career because, as you know, this podcast is about what brought you to writing. So with such a varied career, I want to start with where you grew up and how it is that you ended up sitting in front of me today to have this conversation. Oh, that's a great and long story. I, I'm up for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was born in uh, Adelaide yes. in 1965, so that makes me 54 this yeah. year. Um, my parents were both migrants from Europe, so I'm first generation Australian. Yeah. Um, I always loved reading, yeah. always loved reading, voracious. Nancy Drew was my first addiction, I have to say. Didn't really love Enid Blyton so much. It didn't, didn't ring true to me. And I loved Nancy Drew because she was a redhead like I am. And she solved, you know, she solved crimes all by herself. I thought that was fantastic. And then I, oh, I graduated into sort of high school and more adult reads. And I just, I, I thought I would love to be a writer. And I did dabble in some poetry that I sent to Dolly magazine when oh, I was yes. a teenager. I remember Didn't that. Didn't ever get published. Yeah. I met someone who, in fact, was published. I was so jealous. Yeah. Um, so and then I started writing my own stories and I didn't really know how to take that to any next level. Back mm. then there weren't creative writing degrees or mm. so someone who loved English and history like I did was guided into becoming a lawyer or a journalist and um, I didn't get the marks I needed to get into law and really that's a blessing to the legal profession because I'm not detail oriented at all. Mm. Um, and so I got into journalism and so um, I studied journalism at uni and uh, then... In Adelaide. In Adelaide and yeah. then um, became an ABC cadet in the Adelaide newsroom. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, that was that was really great. It was... Um, yeah. For... for Back in the 80s, I mean, if you wanted to be a journalist, you kind of wanted to change the world. Yeah. Um, so um, we had a, I had a great time there. Oh, I didn't do, you know, big political reporting or anything. I was still very junior, but I just loved that idea. And really, it's telling stories. Yeah. And it's only now I look back and think it was actually telling a story every yeah. day yeah. and trying to make something interesting. I mean, whether it's... The biggest reaction I ever got to a story was um, a sick possum at the Adelaide Zoo, right? <laughs> so it wasn't kind of changing the world. But, you know, if you write an interesting it's story, heartfelt. it's yeah, heartfelt. It's... And people will remember the sick possum more than they'll remember any political story because that seems to be the same thing over and over. So yeah. I did it's love It's elephants and koalas and dogs that get oh, me. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And it's like cat videos on the internet. Mm. We love them because... It's they make us break. feel happy. Yeah. They make us feel happy. It's a break from everything else. Yeah. So you worked at the ABC for how long? Uh, about five years. Mm -hmm. And then I went into politics. That was my way of now, changing the world. Now I want to talk about that. You know, that's a big shift. Uh, well, I went in as a media advisor. So it was kind of a, a yeah. logical move. Mm -hmm. um, back then, though, the media was very different. In Adelaide, yeah. we had two newspapers. Um, there was no internet. And the, yeah. So the speed so of things you was much slower. Yeah, you weren't um, feeding the 24-hour news cycle. No, not at all. And yeah. I think that's that's really hard these days. And it, it, it leads to a lot of burnout on people, mm. you know, mm. politicians as well as staff because mm. it just never stops. And, especially, and people's attention span is getting shorter and shorter. I, I agree. I think yeah. that's why people are watching so many cat videos. Yeah. So tell me about it. your time there. Did you feel, did you go into that political um, environment with really high hopes um, to change the world? Oh, yes, I suppose I did. And I wasn't disappointed in that respect. Right. Because I think a lot of politics is is small things too. Yes. You know, you can, 
the work I was doing, I was a media advisor first and I became a, um, a, a policy advisor. So you see the small victories. Um, changing, changing broader policy direction is hard. Um, so you take the small victories as I helped that person today or I asked a question which led to someone getting that service they needed or um, and so does that happen with people ringing the office writing in mostly writing yeah. in and I worked help. well I worked for the Minister for Disability yeah um, so there was a, a lot of unmet need as you know we know now and yeah. um, so people would write in and, and look the public servants I worked with were fantastic and really dedicated um, but sometimes they're so busy that it, sometimes it took a question from us to say can we do that for that person or can we send them there or and it sometimes it would just cut through so that was yeah. always very rewarding i can imagine yeah and then i was a speech writer for um a time as well and that again that was for telling who? stories for um the premier mike ran at the time wow. um and then for That's one of the ministers impressive. yeah that was a great job but it was extremely busy yeah some weeks that some months there were 28 speeches to write wow and it, just you or did you have a no team? just me yeah wow that's a lot, isn't it? It was a lot of a lot of mm. words, um, and but again, it was stories. And mm. he, he taught me something very important, actually, about telling stories. He said, "Find out, for instance, I was there was a speech. He was going to speak to some st school students, and he said, ring the principal and ask them what they should hear.'" Mm. And that was a really, really good lesson, actually. Mm. So it was about telling a story that was relevant to those students. Yeah, I agree with that, actually. Mm. That's, and I think that that's what's coming through with a lot of the Australian fiction that we're seeing at the moment. If I were to take it to that, writers like yourself are telling the stories that women want to read. I think that's true. And I get mm. that feedback, too, that mm. when I've been touring with the Land Girls, I've asked who's heard of the Australian Women's Land Army and yeah. as I mentioned before some people hadn't yeah. and they're fascinated when I um, and I'm look I was fascinated too that's why I wrote the book yeah. I saw a reference to the Women's Land Army online somewhere and I thought to myself what I've never heard of that we had mm. one I knew the UK had one and there's been drama series and, and you know lots of books lots of fiction about that but I didn't know we had one so mm. I, I googled it and you know, a week later came out of the internet thinking my God, there are so many great stories here mm. that I didn't know about. And if I don't know about them, mm. I bet readers don't know about them. So I, I looked around and looked looked for fiction about the Women's Land Army and I couldn't find any either. There's some fantastic non-fiction, most of it from the 90s. True Grit is um, a fantastic book by Jean Scott, which is about the... Uh, is uh, stories about the real women and she kind of traces the history of the land army too she was a land army girl herself mm. so they were all fantastic um for my research but i wanted to fictionalize it to really bring it close uh, for the reader mm. um okay take me back to your um speech writing days so you were speech writing for a few years yes and then how did you transition what was the next job then then I worked in the public sector. I worked in the health department in South Australia yeah. for a f um, almost three years. And that was a very busy time. Um, I really loved that work as well, but it was just a lot of, it was hard. It was long hours and um, I have three children and it was pretty intense. Yeah. And it was a time when... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Swine flu um, hit maybe a decade ago, and I people were dying that. from swine flu and things. So it was very intense. And then, were people dying in this country from swine flu? Yeah, that, with, uh, with underlying conditions. Right. You know, it's a bit like the flu now yeah. there are cases where people didn't have anything else underlying but yeah so it was very busy a great job and great experience but um boy i was a yeah. bit burnt out so i then went off and worked in the private sector as a communications consultant for a while but then i um a friend of mine um returned from bali her name's sarah tooth she'd been running the ubud writers festival I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I went to Ubud, but not when the festival was on. Um, and she got a job at Writers, or SA Writers Centre, as it was called. And as it turns out, our youngest sons are best friends. This oh, is a very well. Adelaide story. Right. So uh, Frank and Clancy were best friends, and that's how I met Sarah. And um, she took up this new position at the SA Writers Centre, and um, I hadn't heard of the SA Writers Centre. And then it Writers Centres are great. I mean, I don't oh, know SA wonderful. particularly, but, yeah. you know, there's one in every state. And New South yeah. Wales Writers Centre is fantastic. They, well. I, if yeah. people aren't involved with their own, yeah. I would totally recommend mm, they should. I do too, yeah. Um, so I, um, she, when she got the job, I thought, hmm, and it rekindled that, that idea that I'd had that I'd always wanted to write. So I went along to a workshop, and um, more, than, more than one actually, and uh, thought, right, this is my chance to do this thing I've always wanted to do. So I wrote a book, um, first book I'd ever written. So that's interesting. I want to know how old your children um, were when you started writing because, and I'm not meaning to stereotype here, but I see a pattern of women deciding to start writing when their children are young. Is that your story? Well, mine, no, mine, my slight story is slightly okay. different. Um, my, I have three sons and... Is that all? <laughs> yeah, three sons. I don't call it cooking at my home. I call it catering. Yes, that's um, right. <laughs> it was when the youngest was 12 that I really had the headspace and the, the time to sit on my own and do something for myself again, which I hadn't had for my... So there's six years between my youngest and my oldest. So the oldest was 18, the youngest was 12. When they're younger, they need you around. They pull out your shirt sleeves, you know. What's yeah. for dinner, Mum? Where are we going? What's happening yeah. today? When my youngest got to 12, they needed to know I was in the house and and I was there to cook dinner. Yes. But they didn't need me right near But do them. you know, that's a similar scenario to those that I've heard. Um, you know, maybe it's sleep time when they're nappy and things yes, like that. Yes, or school, maybe or when school. they start school. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting, isn't yeah. it? It's the multitasking nature of women. It is. And, and I... I'm a great believer in you can have it all, just not all at the same time. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay, so you decided to write. I decided to write and I um, I knew there was, um, the person I did the workshop with mentioned Romance Writers of Australia and that there was a conference coming up in August of that year. So this was February yeah. and I, I thought, 
and I become a bit obsessive sometimes. <laughs> and I thought, right, I'm going to finish this book and I'm going to go to the conference in August. I'm going to pitch it because if I don't do it this fast, I'm so going to waste time. I gave myself a deadline. And did you have the story in your head? No. So tell me how that came about. Well, actually, the workshop, um, the presenter um, had a, some pages from a magazine and she had a picture of a man sitting at a um, cafe, outdoor table at a cafe. And she said, who's this guy and what's his story? Because it was a, a, a workshop about romance. And uh, it just came to me just like that. Oh, wow. So I wrote that story and... Um, hang on, hang on. You don't just write that story. <laughs> So Typing, lots of typing. Lots of typing. But you have pretty much went from short form to long form. I mean, you know, yes, I mean, you true. weren't writing 100,000 words. No, no, no. So tell me about that transition. Well, it's not like I just wrote that story. Well, I kind of did, actually. Did I mean, you? I, yeah, I did. I Because I'd done really serious jobs at work, the last thing I wanted to do was come home and be immersed in a really serious story a, a novel I for for a lot of years I just couldn't read yeah um, and I so I picked up some things that are lighter in tone but still well written mm -hmm. if you like so I started reading some romances and Nora Roberts I yeah, vowed absolutely. and Jennifer Cruzy I think is really hilarious so um, and then I discovered some Australian writers as well like Bronwyn Parry and um, I just thought well you can tell these stories and and have deeper meaning to them but they can still have a resolution that's when you close the pages at the end, you go, oh, that was nice. It makes you feel yeah, good. Yeah, it makes you feel good. So yeah. that's sort of what I what I set out to write. Um, so I'd never written anything before. I, um, But I'd been a writer all my life, in a sense, a professional writer. Definitely. And I think yeah. that helps with that muscle. Yeah. It doesn't mean you can automatically write a novel, but it's something about discipline and sentence structure and how things sound on the page and dialogue. I think it's one of my strengths because I've been listening to people my whole career about, you know, reporting and yeah. speech writing and how words sound when they're read out loud and um, I, I think that helped. Yeah, um, yeah. It wasn't as if I, I came from a, say, science technical career or something and then suddenly had to, you know, put words on the page. Mm. Um, okay, so you finished your first manuscript. I finished my manuscript and I went to the conference. It was Romance Writers' Con Annual Conference in uh, on the Gold Coast in so 2012. So that was really the first book you'd ever written? Yes, yeah, and I sat there and I pitched it because yeah. it's a great conference, and I've been involved with romance writers um, in the years since. I've just stepped down from the committee, but you have a chance to speed date with publishers, and it really is like that. You sit yeah. down, and you know, those listeners who who are writers will probably know about it. You say, "Hello, my name is Victoria Perman. This is my book called Nobody But Him, and it's about this." And um, I pitched to Hayley Nash, who was at Harlequin then, mm -hmm. and. Um, they listened and uh, Hayley said, oh, I'd like to read the manuscript. And she asked me to send it to her and, and I was trying to write down her email address and I, I, my mind went totally blank. Yeah. This is not what I, quite what I expected at all. Yeah. Um, I started to sweat. <laughs> and in the end I couldn't spell so I had, she had to write down her email address for me and um, I left the room and because um, you were nervous I, was, I, didn't, I wasn't nervous going in but as soon as she said we want to read yes. it I thought this isn't supposed to happen this way yeah. and um, I left the room and I was drenched and I called my husband and said they want to read the book and then I had to have a shower <laughs> So they did read the book and they did publish they the did book. They did read the book and then in December of that year I was offered a three-book contract with um, Harlequin, um, which is now part of HarperCollins yeah, um, and fantastic. I've been with them ever since. Yeah. Um, that's pretty extraordinary and it, 
I'm not going to say it's lucky because um, hard work isn't luck. But I have met so many writers that have had so many rejections. People must tell you that. I, I know, and I look. Josephine like, Moon. She keeps a spreadsheet. She told me I think she had a. 100 rejections oh before God, she was published. Oh, God, that's heartbreaking. See, I know, I know myself too well. I don't think I would have kept going. Well, she didn't see it as heartbreaking. She saw it just as practice. Oh, well, that's, see, she's a glass half full kind of gal. <laughs> that's right. I'm a bit of a glass half empty kind of gal yeah, myself. Wow. Yeah. And it happened for you on the first go. Yeah, it did. Well, I've got to say that doesn't happen that often. So I, I am aware of that now. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about the research because there's a lot of, because it's historical fiction, there's... I mean, you said you sat down and just wrote the book, but really you've got to get, even though it's fiction, there's so much you have to get right, don't you? Talk to me about that process. Um, I I kind of flexed that muscle a bit in my 2017 book, The Three Miss Allens. It was a Mm -hmm. time slip historical, so part of it was set in the 30s. And I really wanted to get that detail right. Um, I set the book at Victor Harbour. Victor Harbour was really interesting in, in Adelaide history because it was a place where the well-to-do went for their summer holidays and I wanted to recreate that world so I had to find out where they might have stayed, the names of guest houses that were around at the time. What did they do um, to, for entertainment? They played croquet yeah. <laughs> and a park that's there now used to be a croquet field yeah. as, as I've discovered. Um, what did they eat when they went out for morning tea? Because the women would go to the tea salons and the men would go to the pub. Mm. Uh, and my story's about the women. So what, what were the names of the cakes? Um, what clothes did they wear? Did they wear, what kind of bathers did they wear? Because it was beach holiday. So I went down those rabbit holes and I discovered some really fun things that men were still wearing the kind of all it, all in one bathers, which might look like a singlet and the sort of shorts joined together, if you like. But it was very controversial when men rolled down the singlets to expose their chests. Women weren't even going in their bikinis back then. Um, And there were beach inspectors policing men for rolling down their singlet tops. So all that was just great flavour and I loved that. So um, that book was received very well and then I started thinking about the next book and I wanted to honour my mum's migration history as I've explained and that took a lot of research about um, even things like the food they ate at the Bonagilla camp. Every story I did for the research and I talked to my mum and my auntie, the food was there wasn't food was served to people so they didn't have a choice and the food drove them nuts it was mutton and do you know and and also you come from those backgrounds where food is so important and you enter a culture where food back then in australia didn't matter so much and then you had food that was served on mass yes really i mean that's so depressing what people did find it very hard the italians in particular oh can you imagine they the the pasta sauce was tomato sauce yeah now look it might seem like a small thing but when you've given up everything yes that is what connects you to your culture so um my grandfather didn't eat lamb for 20 years after he was at bonagilla because the mutton smell was so strong but then they had to feed nine thousand people at a time i mean you know other people said oh it was fantastic i didn't have to cook that was usually the women i have to say yeah um so i wanted to get all that right and um and was it an emotional journey 
It was for me, actually. Yeah. And I sat down with my mum. Mum was born in 41, and but her sister was four years older, so she had better memories of the war. And I'd never really sat down and talked to them about mm. some of those things. And my auntie described, and I recreated the scene in the book, she described going for a walk in Hungary. They lived in a small village outside Budapest, which is now a suburb of Budapest. Um, and she saw um, Russians killing some German soldiers, and then they fell into a creek, and the blood ran through the water of the creek she was a child mm. so i didn't know any of those things mm. um wake up people this is why people leave their country exactly and risk their lives exactly. and their families lives yeah. yeah and my grandmother was 12 she was an orphan and was put into foster care but she was attacked by the father the foster father so she ran away this is in the 30s um early 30s and um was taken in by a jewish baker who gave her a job and then they ended up paying for her wedding. She stayed with them until mm. um, she got married. Now, we know what happened to the Jews of Hungary. Mm. So my family is so connected to this this terrible history mm. and that was really moving for me. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, and to think that they they just wanted to come here for peace. Yeah, they just want to yeah. live a life. They just, just want like to you live and a I. life. Yeah, they don't want very much and no. they're really prepared to work hard. That's right. So when it came to writing The Land Girls, I really, um, Trove is a brilliant resource, mm. newspapers and magazines and things that I had to, here are some things I had to find out. Were there hot water bottles in 1943? There were. Mm. I've since had it confirmed by people who've come along to the book events, which is really terrific. But I didn't want to put that in if it was wrong. So then I had to spend an hour finding out if there were. And you can't just Google, were there hot water bottles in 1943? I had to go, I went back to Women's Weekly magazines and I looked at every issue until I found an ad for one, oh, for wow. instance. Yeah. So I wanted to get that right. I wanted yeah. to get the, again, the food is, I use food to really invoke mm. the era because it was so different back then. Mm. What people had for dinner and... Yeah, and they make the memories and smells and scents. But I think it's really important, and, and you know this, of course, when you're writing historical fiction, that if you don't get it right, it doesn't ring true. That's right. Don't you think? Someone, a reader has contacted me um, while I've been on tour, and I haven't had a chance to double check, but she said I, I, I mentioned one of the characters had hair like Shirley Temple, and the reader said Shirley Temple didn't have hair like that back in... 1943. I'm going to go back because I'm, I'm determined because I my editor also raised that with me and I'm sure I changed it. <laughs> I think that's tiny. Victoria, thank you so much for coming in to speak with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Cheryl. I've loved it. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.